Hello, my name's Russell Howcroft and I've been, well, I've lived a lot of lives. I've been an ad man, a CEO, a chair, an author, a panellist, and I'm currently co-host of a radio show on 3RW and I'm partner, chief creative officer at the Sayers Group and I host this podcast. Welcome to Conversations. That's Conversations, a Sayers podcast. Throughout my time, I've learned that so much in life starts with, yep, yeah, a conversation and that's what we're going to do right here today and today... We're going to be speaking to Christine Corbett. Now, Christine is the Chief Customer Officer at AGL, but she's also the CEO-elect at AGL. Now, I want to talk to you at length about AGL, um, Christine. But before I do, can you explain to me what the notion of being CEO-elect is? Absolutely. So thank you very much for having me on. So CEO-elect, it's a weird little title, but what it means is coming up to almost 12 months ago, uh, we announced our intention to demerge AGL Energy into two companies. Mm-hmm. There'll be Axel Energy and AGL Australia. And as a result of that, uh, we've been working really hard over the last 12 months and I have been appointed as the CEO-elect, but it is dependent mm-hmm. on um, us lodging and getting out our scheme booklet and all our shareholders voting yes in for favor. the demerger. In okay. And what sort of timing is that? We are in our last 90 days, so I will be the CEO on the 1st of July, pending the vote, pending the vote. And the the merged entity, sorry, the demerged, you've got two brand names that you mentioned. One of them is AGL and the other is? So one is AGL Australia Uh and the other is Axel Energy. And and spell Axel for me. A-double-C-E-L. And is Axel what you will be the CEO of? No, I'm the CEO of AGL Australia. Okay. What we've basically done is we've looked at how do we try to create two leading energy companies, two companies each with their own purpose, Axel Energy, Uh that's where we'll have our sort of thermal plant operations and their story were really all about how do we transition Australia on this big energy transition from sort of thermal hubs to sort of what we're saying is our low carbon industrial hubs and that sits in one entity. I will actually run the customer side of the business, so okay. I'll have the retail book and a lot of our renewable generation sites as well. Uh, okay, we're going to get right into this, but what we're going to do first, you sound very relaxed. I am we don't relaxed, even, I am we, relaxed. We don't even need to do this, but what we do at the start of our conversation podcasts is we play a series of sounds, so I want you just to close your eyes. The mm-hmm. reason why we do this is we want you to... Go to the best place for you mm-hmm. where you just have grouse conversations. So, where do you like to have a chat? Oh, see, I chat everywhere, but those <laughs> sounds... Good on you. Noosa, the beach, yes. at book club, in wine bars. Okay, okay. Just with people. I love people. Just with people. Okay, so and, and so if you're at the beach, yes. um, do you sit in a circle or in a line? In a line. Yeah. Yeah, I do a- sit and, in a line. And do you find that that's a better way to have those chats? Uh, depends on how many, because when I go to the beach, I yeah. often sit there in the morning on my own and I do chat to some strangers while I have a coffee and a little dates gone yeah. in the bakery there. Uh, when I go later in the day, it's actually with my family. They're in and out of the water, but you know, usually one is beside, uh, or I'm there with my sisters. So, Oh, how many sisters oh, have I've you got? I've got two sisters. Okay. I'm the middle child. I've oh. got one older, one younger. <laughs> I'm everything there is to know about a typical middle child. Oh, 
So, umbrellas. Um, are you an umbrella person on the beach? No. Really? No. No. That does surprise me. Uh, Queensland girl. Oh, and Queenslanders, Queenslanders just get into it. Well, you know, we probably weren't sun safe in the 70s. We should have been. Oh. But you know, sometimes old dogs, it's okay. hard to learn new tricks. So not wanting to get too deep into the past, but lotion of choice as a teenager? Lotion of choice. Oh, see, Sunsense was always one. Yeah. Or Latan, oh, actually. Latan. Latan was yeah, massive. Yeah, yeah, no, Latan as a kid. Oh, yeah. Now, what was the one, the Tropicana or Tropical? Or? Yeah, never got into Tropicana, never got into the oil. The oil was Yeah, a my bit mother dangerous. would never allow me. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So the Queenslanders, no umbrella and no Tropical. Well, that's, that's fine. Zinc, zinc occasionally. Zinc was good. Yeah, zinc went on. Terry Talling. Oh, look, sometimes Terry Tailing, but my mother also maybe wore a bathing cap in the ocean. Oh, you know, again, tragic. Still, yeah, no, it was tragic. Especially <laughs> the ones that actually had the little uh, rubber things on around. So it wasn't oh. like the Speedo cap, it was the old lady's cap. Shocking. Yeah. Uh, and were you yeah. a nipper? No, no, I wasn't that good. Okay. I ended up swimming, doing swim squad in um, high school. Yeah, great. Uh, we lived in Brisbane, not at the coast, so nipper was a bit hard to okay. commute. Okay, understand. So Brisbane was where you were brung up? Endowed. Uh, and uni? Uni, I went to QUT, did communications at uni, oh, and then great. I went back and did law. Okay, oh, magnificent. And then, now is it straight into Australia Post, or was there something before Australia I Post? I worked for a PR company for a couple of years, straight out of uni, which was fabulous. It was a tiny company, mm-hmm. but because it was a tiny company, at the age of 20, yeah. I was responsible for finding new clients. And I'd, you know, as a you know young 20-year-old, yeah. I remember going to sort of the stock exchange in Brisbane, seeing which new companies were listing, and then quite literally knocking on their door, asking if they needed some communications help. So I think executives that have been around a while, I think if they reflect on their first job, it's almost like the first language that they learned. Yeah. Um, and so can you just tell us some of the stuff you learned early days yeah. being in that PR world yeah. that you still hold today? Yeah, absolutely. So number one would be importance of communication. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as I say to a lot of people, got a degree in it, love it, but I think nothing is more important in the business world. So the art of communicating both written and verbally, really important. That's number one. Two is actually not being afraid to ask for help and go after what you want. When you're a small business, you've got to go out there, you've got to get clients, you've got to have confidence, you've got to have a bit of front. Yeah. Uh, but you've got to do your homework because you're actually up against the big guys. So I think that's the second thing. Mm. And then the third thing for me was actually the importance of cash flow. Uh, because as a small business, I still remember... My boss at the time, we would write checks back in the day and we would literally wait to get paid for certain things before we could pay some of our suppliers. So really understanding the the comings and goings of cash was really important. The written word, that really interests me. Mm -hmm. Um, Am I being a bit old farty when I say, God, people have lost the skill around the written word or is that a fair comment? I think it's a fair comment, but I think unless you really master the art of the written word, it's really hard to master the art of the spoken word. And part of that, I think, sometimes a really good discipline with a written word makes you be crisp, makes you be clear. It has to be simple. So I think they're two sides of the same coin. Was there someone in your early business life that was just beautiful at writing and you thought, oh, I'm going to work hard to be just like them? One person, I think, you know, for me, studying communications, it was, when I say it was tough, it was disciplined, it was rigorous. You know, in first year uni, we were allowed three mistakes 
in, in an assignment, in the entire assignment. In second year, we were allowed two. In third year, we were allowed one. Wow. So it really taught you to be tight. It taught you to be succinct. It taught you to go back and check your work because uh, you could put all that effort in for naught. So, again, a good discipline in life. Sounds like QET was pretty tough. Now, <laughs> I, I reckon it's, it's really interesting the relationship that executives have mm-hmm. with the media. I suspect that there is a huge advantage that you've got in that you understood right from the very beginning the role that public relations can play in business. Is that fair? Yeah. I think both public relations and the media and journalists, you know, it's their job. It's their job to get the story. It's their job to ideally get both sides and present a balanced view. But it's their job. And I think what's really important having sort of a communications background is you don't take it personally. It's objectively you're there to do a job, the media is there to do a job. Um, hopefully sometimes you meet in the middle, but if not, don't take it personally. It's always intrigued me that if you do media training, the trainer um, comes from the position that the media is out to get you. Um, and as a result, the executive is on the immediately concerned or on the back foot. Or again, am I exaggerating? Um, I think that is true. I think the other thing sometimes with traditional media training, it's you have a message, don't, you know, don't even listen to what they ask. Just get your message, get your message, get your message. But I think the world's moved on from that. Yep. People have moved on from that. They actually want to know who you are as a person, what makes you tick. Yeah. So if you stick to the script and you stick to the corporate lingo and the corporate speak, it's actually quite dull. But then you don't come across as authentic either. Is there anyone out there in the public relations world that's informing or training, advising executives, use the media to as a platform to help you build brand and help you build business? I think that's happened in particular over the last few years and I think most good PR agencies, communications agencies would do so because people are getting, you know, their information from so many sources now and I think in particular, you know, if I take people of my generation, sadly I say my generation, it's actually understanding the social media platforms now and the instant nature of it and how you can actually interact and use both to sort of get across your message but to also hear what your customers are doing. What are they seeing? What are they being influenced by? And how do you need to respond to that? Okay, so public relations. Yep. Uh, and I know, so Auspost, was that straight after? So Auspost was a client of mine. Okay. When I worked for a PR agency, Post was a client. So I went from being sort of the consultant to then bringing the communications in-house. What would make you do that? <gasps> what would make me do that? Um, I think sometimes at a small business, sometimes because I was sort of thrown in into the deep end, I absolutely loved it. My boss was my mentor who became my best friend. I was actually, you know, his person, um, you know, his best man, I used to say, at his wedding. Um, But the opportunity to go to Australia Post was an opportunity to learn from many to uh, really actually sort of understand our bigger organisations, the beauty of Australia Post for me, and it never left me, it was actually the beauty of the and. At Australia Post, you had to deliver commercial, you had a commercial obligation, um, but you also had a community service obligation. So it was business and community, you know, profit and, you know, service obligations. And I think... A lot of other businesses were the or. You know, you make a profit at all or at all costs or you're in a non-profit and you're doing good. Yeah. And I think what's really started to happen in the last few years 
is no one will survive unless you do both. So business won't survive unless they have a social licence and, you know, non-for-profit won't survive unless they actually make money to be sustainable. So this is fascinating, isn't it? So another sort of first language or second job, Auspost, second career, the, what you learnt there around sort of the social licence as well as actually functioning as a decent business. Absolutely. Now, oh, that's pretty interesting. When but we, we didn't call it that, no. you know, 28 years ago. It, and, and, you know, for Australia Post, it was actually enshrined in legislation. Yeah. So we had to. So that was how I was brought up in the business world. You had to think of the and, you had to think of the compromise, you had to think how you collaborated. It wasn't win or lose. Though you have just reminded me that, um, or I've reminded myself, the notion of the triple bottom line is actually quite old. Yeah, like, I'm, I reckon it's at least 20 years ago that we oh, first... Easy. Didn't easy. we? Yeah. And then it sort of went away for a while. Well, I think then what sort of happened, you then, we've been in such an era of prosperity. Yeah. And I think in eras of prosperity where you don't have to dig deep and do it tough, sometimes you can be a little blinkered. Okay. I, I think that's true. <laughs> okay, so 27 years at Australia Post. 27 years, 11 months and two weeks. Magnificent. Just saying. Yeah. Just saying. So now give us the high points. High points for me. Um, so biggest high point for me um, was really redefining retail at um, Australia Post. So, you know, to go from post offices to post shops, that was a huge highlight yeah, for me. Yeah, um, That's number one. You're uh, selling a lot of stuff in there uh, Yeah, too, we're selling right? a lot of stuff. Uh, but it was actually really how do we leverage this amazing foot traffic that Australia Post have got? How do we actually make sure we can do more than one thing in one place? Yeah. So that was actually really exciting for me. Uh, the other really exciting thing was actually being on the executive team that really converted Australia Post from being a Les business to a parcels e-commerce business and riding that wave, building that infrastructure, taking our customers, taking our stakeholders, taking the government on that journey. That was actually really exciting for me So well. the infrastructure thing, I've been thinking about that with mm. Australia Post. Mm. So, okay, so when you started there, it was an envelope or it might have been a, a really big envelope. Yep. Um, that's what you had to deal with. Yep. Now... I'm assuming the majority of what you've got to deal with now are boxes. Yep. Boxes take up a whole lot more room. So how, 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 much, more, what, how much bigger is the footprint of Australia Post now? So, you know, interestingly, the post office footprint is, you know, pretty much the same. You uh-huh. know, Australia Post is in every town, uh, you know, in every dot on the map. So, you know, that again has a wonderful sense of legacy and history and community spirit. But if you take the operations... They've gone from, you know, really thin little envelopes to, yeah, you're right, big boxes. That yeah. meant, you know, new factories needed to be put in, you know, big warehouses needed to be put in, new machinery needed to be put in, mode of transport had to change, you know, bikes to vans to trucks. Yeah. So it was really, it wasn't an evolution. It really took place over a relatively short period of time. The whole organisation got behind it. And when you look at Australia Post today... Every organisation has sort of different challenges, but I think Australia Post can look back over the last 10 years yep. and say it fundamentally changed its 200-year history. Go back 27 years ago, yep. or thereabouts, yep. when you started at Australia Post. So you would have been there early days of email. Yeah, I was there, sadly. I think I was even there before. I started there in 1990. Yeah, okay. So so we sort of had our own little system pre-email and yeah. I think my first mobile phone was actually, I, it had a zip around it and it had a cord and it was very, very heavy. Yeah. yeah. But did Australia Post take a while to recognise that the, the email was in fact the beginning of a revolution? They must have been scared at first. 
So I remember in the 90s, we would do various wargaming about, you know, what-ifs sort of scenarios. But what happened in those 90s sort of period, every time we thought something might happen and something might replace, there was another change. Either GST came in or, or things happened that actually allowed both business and government to communicate more and they communicated more through traditional means. So there was sort of then this hiatus period where... You thought sort of the war was on your doorstep, but then you sort of had a little bit of a rest. So it'd be probably fair to say it was – it took a while to go, email is going to absolutely replace. And the issue then with email was it was free. Yeah. Uh, So you didn't just have sort of a a mode of communication changing. You actually had an economic imperative. You're paying for one and not paying for the other. (laughs) Um, And that then fundamentally changed the business model and it fundamentally – then had to say what's another source of revenue that we've still got some capability in that we can leverage the capabilities in the infrastructure but we need to join a wave that is going to rise. Yeah. Um, now when we thought that, you know, when um, Ahmed Fahul came in as the CEO in 2010, uh, he recognised that sort of e-commerce wave. It took probably a good – it took a couple of years and we did some inorganic uh, opportunities, you know, bought the other half of Star Trek from Qantas – that really, yep. um, you know, cemented. We're bigger in parcels than in letters. But it really then probably took the next five years to build the infrastructure to really give people hope in the sustainability of the business model to bring our customers on the journey to really then make sure all the dots were joined up. And then once we had that infrastructure in place, we could then go back and go, right, what is the ideal customer experience we right. want? And who can we learn from? Because we didn't want to learn from other postal agencies. We actually wanted to learn from the best organisations and you look at now the delivery experience. We had a program called Deliveries That Make You Smile and we really leveraged from the Ubers of the world that actually sort of said it needs to be app-driven, we need to be able to track your parcel, we need to be able to give customers the choice because it turned from, you, you think, 10 or 20 years ago, you only got a parcel when your grandmother or your mother or someone sent you a birthday present. Yeah. Whereas now parcels is an active engagement category. You order, you track, you receive. So we needed to sort of make sure the technology base was all part so, of it. So the reason I bring up email for, or letters, yes. physical letter to the email. I still write letters, you know. Yeah, well, I'm glad yeah, you do. Yeah, I do thank too. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, the thing that I love doing is I write a letter, take a photograph and, and uh, text it. Oh, do you? So it's like a hybrid. Oh, that's interesting. Do you like that idea? Well, no. <laughs> no. No, no. I think it's better than just a, a, a rote, you know, yeah. uh, normal email. I just think there's still, and maybe it's because, you know, look, Australia Post will always be in my veins. I left there in 2018, but I still think back very fondly. I think there's something special when you receive something that someone's taken the time, yeah. it's in their handwriting, you can put it away, I you agree. can look back and reflect on it. There's something intangible about that. Couldn't agree with you more. Okay, so the world changed. World changed. You, you, we were doing paper and then all of a sudden we're digitised in terms of our comms. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's like yeah, absolutely fundamental change from hundreds of years of behaviour. Mm-hmm. So you're now in the middle of serious change. Absolutely. Uh, and it's... It's probably a bit, well, it's a bigger revolution. I mean, that was a comms revolution, pretty important stuff. I mean, communication and how the world works, pretty important. Energy, let's say they're equally, they're equally significant. So 
you've got the experience. You've mm. been there. Mm. You, you presumably you can see the other side. But goodness me, this energy transformation is unbelievably complex. So just give us a bit of an insight into how you're dealing with it at AGL. Yeah. So I think the thing we need to start with, from an ESG perspective, from a climate change perspective, there is probably no other topic that is spoken more about now Mm -hmm. on the planet. Um, So yeah, everyone has an opinion of it. Absolutely everyone. And opinions, some are really well-informed, some come from an engineering background, some come from what they read in the media, other people have picked up something and just like to have a dig. Um, but So it comes from all angles, but I think the thing is that's really, really important is the world cannot function without energy. Yeah. And I think, so. first and foremost, so everything we do, what we want to stream how we use email, how we want to communicate, how we listen, how we get entertained, how we'll drive, all of that will be centred around energy. And it's been something that no one's thought of. It's literally flick on a switch, it's going to be there. But it's also been, when you sort of think of the underpinning, it's been this one-way centralised model. You know, there's been power stations built, they produce energy, it gets sort of, you know, put down the lines in terms of the poles and wires, goes to households. But simple centralised infrastructure. Yeah. The world we're moving to, the world of renewable energy, it's not just the fuel, it's not wind, solar versus coal, it's actually it's going to be decentralised. So the solar panels on your roof, you know, houses are everywhere. So you need to connect the power from all of those individual houses. Mm-hmm. How does it actually sort of feed into the grid? So all the roofs, in effect, become a grid. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But not only just the roofs become, it actually energy, and again, I didn't know this until I joined, you know, never thought about it until I joined AGL. But, you know, it's a use or lose commodity, energy. You produce it, you use it. If you don't use it, traditionally, you've lost it. Of it's course. Gone, right? It's instant. It's right. gone. So the biggest revolution that will happen in tandem is you need to be able to store it that's where the power comes if you can store energy you can then use it at a later time so when we say store that's when people talk about batteries yeah you know the sun shining that's fantastic yes well two things i need batteries which is batteries at home but this is where electric vehicles will be so exciting because they become a battery on wheels and then you can store the energy that you might be generating yourself and then use it when you need at a later time so the the car itself becomes the household battery potentially absolutely absolutely so presumably there's countries already doing that we're prob- uh, look, Europe leads the world, yep. you know, in terms of they're much more advanced with us in that. They've got more vehicles, so there's more choice. The price of those vehicles has sort of come down, yep. how that's connected to the grid. But again, it comes back to parallels with Australia Post. You need the infrastructure, yeah. right? You need to be able to have the infrastructure. You need to be able to have critical scale. And then you need to actually work through, and this is the biggest issue, and another learning <laughs> between commercial and social, you know, the and. Yeah is all of this sounds wonderful, but how do you bring everyone in society along the journey? The people with solar on their roofs, the people who can afford household batteries at the moment, the people who are buying the electric vehicles, they're not the most vulnerable in society. Mm. So, you know, energy and the energy transition is something that everyone needs to participate in because everyone's going to be involved in it. So it's actually trying to sort of work out that social parity that's going to be a real... um, That's going to be an issue in terms of affordability.
availability. Time is going to be a real issue. Uh, the technology, the size, the speed, the scale, the cost. Yeah. And ultimately, at the end of it, how do you actually ensure there's equity? How do you ensure who pays? Is it the shareholder? Is it the customer? Is it the government? And the answer is it's probably going to be a bit of everyone. And it's so complex, isn't it? I mean, the the every single discussion, in particular, I suppose, in the media, um, people want to make it binary. You know, yeah. you're either for yeah. something or you're against something. Oh, look, and absolutely. And, and that's the thing. You can't, you know... The, the issue is, I was speaking to actually someone just the other night, um, and it's not you're you know, for renewables and therefore you're against coal. Yep. Because the reality is, and I'll talk broad figures, you know, 70% of Australia's power at the moment is thermal. Yep. It comes from coal. So if 70. we wanted everything... Now, renewable energy has increased dramatically and it will in can right like you know think of mobile phones i go back to my brick yeah. and how quickly we went from the brick to where we are now similarly you know we've almost had double the penetration of renewable energy in the last five years but it's still you know around that sort of 28 percent yeah it's not 70 percent no that's so right. it's gonna take some time so we have to be able to live with both we actually have to be able to have a transition path that we can explain simply, that people can understand, that actually means we live with a variety. The answer is in a variety of sources of energy. The world will move to renewable energy. It just won't move there tomorrow or next week or next year. Mm -hmm. It will move there. But the amount, the size, the scale of the infrastructure to get there, it just can't happen overnight as much as we want it to. It won't. So this is maybe a political question. Should there be a, let's call it energy commission, which has got a national energy policy, which both sides of the aisle have uh, thrashed out and agreed to and put, uh, put the commission in place to make happen? So there are those forums now. The, the trouble is there's so many forums. Right. Right? So, so even, again, things I've learned, what do you learn? You learn that how Victoria uh, regulates and governs, you know, energy policy is different to what happens in Queensland, New South Wales and South Australia, right? So we've sort of got Victoria yes. doing one thing, uh, those three states doing another. When you talk about uh, energy in Queensland, you've got a deregulated market in southeast Queensland and a government uh, market in the rest of Queensland. When you talk about Canberra, it's a joint venture. When you talk about WA, uh, you've got the business uh, electricity market that's deregulated but not the residential uh, regulated. You know, that's actually still kept in government hands. But gas is deregulated. When you So yeah, it's, hard. so it, it's hard, right? right? So absolutely, Nirvana... You know, consistent policy, everyone plays nicely in the sand pit, everyone understands consistent rules, there's a plan that happens, you know, it happens in sequence, it actually helps investment decisions. That's not the world we live in, right? It's really not. And if anything, post-pandemic, the world's actually even got more complex. Uh, And everyone goes off and does their own thing for the right reasons. Um, So I think, you know, what does success mean? Success means taking the next step, taking a step forward, understanding that, you know, as much as you want certainty of policy, it's probably not necessarily a reality. It is actually to participate in the discussions, to be able to understand you can't do it alone. You have to work with governments at all levels. You have to work with regulators at all levels. But importantly, 
I think if you get the power of the customer, the power of the individual to help participate, help get involved and help engage in the discussion, what is it that the end user wants? What is it that the customer wants? That actually is probably the glue that binds everyone together and I think that's actually what's missing in the conversation. Okay, so... When I read about you, I hear that you're lovely to deal with, oh, which, which you. You know, I've experienced as well when we work together at PwC, <laughs> but you're tough when you need to be. So tell us about the tough bit. Um, look, at the end of the day, I say tough, which is I also describe myself as very pragmatic. You know, at the end of the day, you know, there's lots of thoughts, there's lots of perspectives, there's no probably one right way. Yeah, have to make a decision. So I think the tough comes at the end of the day I'm, I'm very decisive. I'm happy to make a decision. I'm happy to admit when I'm wrong. Um, but I'll make a call. And, you know, just different life experiences I think that everyone has sort of had, it means that you're not always sharing, you know, the it's not always good news. But I think if you deliver bad news with empathy, I think if you actually, when you deliver bad news, you follow it up the next day and the day after and the week after to make sure people are okay. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I do actually, I was only speaking to someone the other day, uh, someone who I worked with, who I ended up letting go from the business, uh, is someone, you know, five years later, um, speaks to me regularly. You know, I think on the day she left, you know, I've got the most beautiful bottle of champagne, I've got the most beautiful flowers, and I felt awful. I'm like, you know, it was me that made the decision. But it was the way it was done. And I think you treat humans like humans. You treat people like you want to be, you know, tell you don't treat people like idiots. You know, people know what's going on. I think they appreciate honesty. They appreciate transparency. They appreciate no bullshit. And I suppose that's what you get with me. So tough and direct. Okay. So you're the CEO um, now. So you've, the vote's good. Almost. And almost. The, well, no, the, vote, the vote's good, okay? <laughs> Excellent. Okay, I'm the CEO. I'm you're there. You're the CEO I'm there. and um, you're on the beach yep. and you're thinking about what you're going to do in the first 100 days. Yeah. So tell us what that looks like. Um, so it's funny, I've actually got a 100-day plan. I, well, I would have thought <laughs> You so. know, surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, so look, I think, you know, the first thing for me, it's actually about the people who work for AGL and AGL Australia. Because going through a demerger is tough. You know, we are literally dividing the company in two. You know, we will be, you know, where you had friends and colleagues, you're actually now going to be competitors, but you're also going to be sort of suppliers to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for first for me, it's actually to build some excitement. Doing a demerger is exhausting. We need to build some excitement. So so that's to me the, the first and foremost. The second thing for me is really starting to understand our brand. Uh, where we have the benefit of keeping the AGL brand. Oldest, and oldest brand in Australia? One of the oldest. One of the oldest. 185 years, <laughs> you know. So 185 year history. And that comes with it, this beautiful customer base where we have over 4 million, you know, customer services that we offer. So we want to keep that. But it will stand for something else. So reigniting, reimagining, reinvigorating the brand is also going to be really exciting for us. So that's a really second big thing that we need to do. Um, But the other really big thing for us is actually fueling growth. You know, the energy market, with all of the topics, it's actually been incredibly volatile over the last few years. We've ridden the ups and the downs. But, you know, really starting to look at, with a big customer base, with, importantly, a really firm climate commitment and a decarbonisation pathway, what does that open up to start to enter into 
new industries, new adjacencies, new products, lead with digital, lead with technology and engage people in a product that no one's cared about. That's all exciting. And then there's sorry, let me and then there's the practical things, you know, to actually really then to to me be that the face and voice with government and with regulators and start to participate in those bigger energy discussions and policies as the CEO. Is there something uh, in the vision yep. or the values uh, yep. of the new AGL which is determined to bring value to the customer? Yeah. Is there something which is about bringing down the price of energy for the customer? So, you know, again, let me, let me stare into the elephant in the room. Right? Absolutely, in the long term, renewable energy is going to be a very affordable energy um, mix for everyone. I've deliberately used the word in the longer term. That doesn't mean immediately. And and the reason I say that uh, is the cost of building this infrastructure, right? The cost of the poles and wires in the middle to be able to connect this energy that everyone around the country is going to be producing themselves, that has to be paid for. Now, when you look at your electricity bill, you know, on average, 40 to 45% of it is actually to pay for the network, the poles and the wires. Mm -hmm. You can't really, you know, that that's a sort of sunk cost, if you like. Yep. And that cost is going to get more because you have to build the infrastructure, right? So so that part of your bill, a little bit tricky, yep. right? Yep. Um, but what can happen if you start to, you know, look into the future and not too far into the future. So let me come back to the car and you think of the price of petrol at the moment and everyone's really conscious of the price at the Bowser. But if you think at the moment how much you are petrol you put in in your car, and you know, depending, some people are putting four thousand dollars a year, five thousand dollars a year, depending on the size of your car. Mm-hmm. The average you know, electricity bill is more like fourteen hundred or fifteen hundred dollars a year. You combine those two. Yes, got it. You will Good. absolutely have savings quickly. Well done. Right? But you've got to combine the two. You can't look at one without the other. Yeah, and I love – and I do love the idea of my car being my household. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an, and that's fascinating. Yeah. What about the network of um, charging mm-hmm. for – I mean, Australia's big. And yep. You know this really well. When yep. you were at the Australia Post, yep. you – I mean, one of the great – amazing achievements of Australia, really. Australia Post being one of them is, we do an amazing job at making our country appear small. Yeah. Incredible. But we're going to need a network of charging for the vehicles, which is easy if you're easier if you're in Italy than if you're in Australia. So what, what if you sort of think about that vision, how long do you think that'll take? Yeah, so look, again, I think people get a little maybe preoccupied with that vision. Yeah. Um, because if you think of most travel, right, most travel, the vision you're talking about is when you do the family road trip and you're driving from, you know, Melbourne to Sydney or Sydney to Brisbane, and that absolutely happens. Um, and there are companies that are dedicated, they're going to be set up, there's trials with government about all putting in that charging infrastructure. And the technology that drives that charging infrastructure uh, and how long it takes to charge your car, just like a mobile phone, that is actually getting quicker mm. and more efficient and you can it will take less to charge your car for longer, right? So there are companies that have been set up, partnerships that have been worked so that all around the country, all around the highways, that will be there. But again, it's not there now. It's being built out. That will actually be built out over the next few years, 
right? Yeah. But we're looking probably 2025 and beyond is when you'll start to have sort of more price parity between a combustion engine and an EV, and it's probably from then that you need it. But the majority of travel is, you know, home to work, socially and around. And again, that's actually sort of where you'll come in, you'll drive around, you'll plug in your car into your, um, you know, your own little grid, you know, your own battery during the day and charge up. Or the other part of charging infrastructure that's actually going to be really important is how does that actually sort of fit in with where you work? All these office buildings in the city that have car parks, uh, you know, have smart chargers there. You're at work, but your car could be charging while you're sitting at work. All the public car parks that are around to be able to sort of drive in and charge your car up and fill it up with its energy. And then go home with a and fully charged car. And then go home car, with a fully charged car. And then, ch- and then plug the fully charged car into the home and charge the home. See, bingo. How good's that? Yeah. So I'm on the Nullarbor plane. It's the year 2035. Yep. Am I actually, when I go to that power station, is that actually in effect going to be one big battery? Um, so we're going to have – you won't have to wait till then. So we're starting to have some grid-scale batteries now. So you'll have – a mobile battery in your car, you'll have a household battery attached to your house, you'll potentially have some community batteries where, you know, neighbourhood blocks will actually start to sort of link in and and generate and share the energy that they're producing and then we'll actually start to have grid-scale batteries and grid-scale batteries, we're building some at the moment. Um, We just announced one last week, uh, we're getting sort of final investment approval for one at Broken Hill, that will be a 50 megawatt battery they're Jeez. doing a 500 megawatt battery sort of at Liddell. So these grid scale batteries will actually sort of be at those traditional sort of power sites that will really power thousands of homes. What about that solar farm up there in the Northern Territory that's going to power Singapore? I don't, so, I mean, solar, I mean, this is where this country, you know, the country that we live in is amazing. Yeah. Right? We can generate power. But we have to store it. Yeah. We have to store it because solar's not that useful at night <laughs> unless you can store the sun. Yeah, got it. Um, so, you know, that's sort of where they fit, hand and glove. I'm excited about uranium, but is that, a, is that okay? Uranium? Yeah. You know what part of uranium? Well, I think we've got about a third of it here in Australia. Yeah, I think yeah, we've got about a, about yeah, a third of the world's yeah, uranium. Yeah, yeah. So let's dig it out and just, you know, well, get I some nuclear power plants. Yeah. Look, you know, nuclear again is sort of going to be interesting, right? Because nuclear is, you know, you, you mentioned nuclear and then people sort of, you know, especially at the moment. But you still. You talk, yeah, still, 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 still. Nah. Um, oh, yeah. Look, uh, it's like everything energy. Everyone has an opinion and it's human nature. You go to the negative, not the positive, right? Well, one of the biggest challenges, of I think, well, a lot of people certainly, um, but I think one of the biggest challenges for energy in the future, and this is going to be a challenge for nuclear, right, is that there's going to be a lot of sources of which nuclear could be one, but Australia is small. And in terms of the size and scale and the population, you know, if you're going to use wind and solar, potentially offshore wind, yeah. um, you know, we've got hydro assets, tide. gas, tide, there'll be a lot of things in the mix. So to sort of bring nuclear in as well, it's absolutely possible. Yeah. But then you start to look at the cost, is it affordable? How do you actually sort of then build that if it's only part of the mix? Are you sort of going to get a payback? You know, that's where some of the economic challenges start to come in. And that's similarly, sorry, economic challenges even with hydrogen, right? Like hydrogen, you know. Again, 
that's probably the next horizon. That will be fantastic for um, heavy transport. That will be great for particular industries. But at a household level, do we really think that, you know, what's going to be the cost of replacing all that infrastructure to bring hydrogen into your house? And is it going to be worth it or do you actually start to segment that use of fuel for particular industries? It's going to be a myriad of solutions that we'll we'll look at. I love it. I actually could talk to you for about another hour about energy. (laughs) Um, Now, But I'm not going to because I want to take you back to the beach now. Okay. All right. Um, Here I go again. Because you're sitting there. Yes. You're there with your two sisters. Yes. Um, one on either side. Yes. Uh, and what are you talking about? So what are we talking about? Generally, well, I said I have two bookends in life. Mind you, I gave up alcohol on the 1st of January to get this demerger done, so yeah. personal sacrifice. But generally two bookends, coffee and wine, are my two bookends in life. Yeah. Um, but what do we talk about? We talk about, um, you know, to be honest, we're, we're best friends as well as sisters. So, you know, life, love and the pursuit of happiness, really, is what we talk about. I talk to my sisters quite literally daily, Mm -hmm. quite literally daily. So it's what's happening with our families, what's happening with our friends, what's happening in the world, Um, you know, and I even just thinking of them now, you can see me smiling, you know, they, um, they bring joy to my life. Good on you, Christine. Lucky you. It's been a great having a conversation with you. Thank you, Russell.